So today we're uh, going to continue. I realized last week that um, we, it took, you know, 12 sermons to do Mark 1. We'll get through Mark 2 uh, and 3. It's going to be, so we're speeding up now. <laughs> the three-year uh, journey through Mark might be shorter than we first thought. So I'm going to read the verses. It, we're in Mark chapter 2, uh, beginning at verse 13. And this is what it says. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for bringing us here out of the world to feast, to draw near to you, to sit at your table, to hear your word, your authority in our lives, to hear the joy and the love that you have in your Son, that is that is ours in your Son. I pray, God, that as we hear your word today, that we would not respond like the scribes who grumbled in their hearts, nor the scribes who talked about the problem instead of to the problem. I pray, Father God, that you would wrestle with us now as you did with Jacob, that you would have your way with us, that you, indeed, as you always are, would be victorious, not just over the world, but over our own hearts. And, and this we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. So there, there's this wilderness theme that we've covered a lot. And what I find fascinating about what Mark is doing here is, is the wilderness theme hasn't left in this particular, particular section because he mentions the sea. And the sea in the Old Testament is actually um, typologically, it's a metaphor for the nations. Uh, it's wild and unruly. Uh, you don't know how deep and dark it is, right? And, and all throughout the Old Testament, when they speak of the sea, uh, they speak of the nations. They speak of those outside of the kingdom of God. Um, as we get with Noah, whenever God is punishing people, he reverses the creation order and lets water overtake land. Uh, and this is why in several times in the Old Testament, when the uh, Gentile nations overtake Israel, he refers to it in the same language that he uses for Noah's flood, right? The The... Uh, Canaanites flood into Israel and, and, and kill everyone. So, so the sea here is, is actually is still this wilderness metaphor, right? This is the pattern. He's gone now into Capernaum. He was at his house. He was preaching. He was teaching. He was healing. And now he's gone out again to the wilderness. And it doesn't say wilderness. It says the sea, but they're the same thing. In Old Testament typology, they're the same thing. And this is how Jesus works. He goes into the midst of people and he does his work and then he withdraws and he rests and he, re and he refreshes himself and he draws near to the Father in this wilderness area where he relies solely on him. I, and I know that you guys are getting used to me saying this now, but I'm just going to keep starting every sermon with it. <laughs> right? The wilderness is where we need to live. Down by the sea is where we need to live. Like the return to the wilderness, the move to the sea entails a deliberate entrance into the sphere of forces which manifest their hostility toward God. 
Okay, the, the, the point here in one sense is that no matter where Jesus goes, he's assaulted by these dark forces. He goes into a synagogue and there they are. He goes into someone's home and there they are. He, he's out in the wilderness and there they are. He's down by the sea and there they are. And, and so the incarnation is all about him coming down in the midst of darkness. There's nowhere literally that he can go where he's away from the forces of evil. I, I, absolutely think that's what Mark is doing because that's what the story is about. The story is about that. The darkness is everywhere. He can't escape it. And neither can any of us. Some of us think we can. Some of us think we have. But we haven't. Because everywhere we go, there it is. Right? Because there we are. <laughs> right? This is uh, uh, usually in counseling, it's, it's, it's always, oh, you have the same problem with all these different people. Hmm. Well, we should go and talk to them and apologize to all of them because I think the problem is yourself, right? (laughs) Spurgeon said, um, if anyone ever reviles you, uh, don't hate them because they have have no idea how bad you really are. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and that is really what we're like. We don't, I mean, right, it's, um, we should just make T-shirts. It really is worse than we think. Right? Or I am really worse than I think. Either way, it, it works. Mark includes the story to present another side of Jesus' controversial activity, which in due course is what gets him in serious trouble. In the last portion, in this portion, is where we're getting now. He's getting the, the thing that he's been trying to avoid. He's getting closer and closer and closer to making the wrong people angry to pushing back against the wrong group of people. Because there are people who, who have the authority and will, and will use it to murder him. And so in this story, we see he takes one step closer on the way of the cross. On the way of the cross. He was sent down to heaven, from, or sent down to earth from heaven to minister to the least and the last and the lost. That's what the story is about. Everywhere he goes... That's what he finds, the least, the last, and the lost. The call of Levi is presented in its barest essentials. Mark records his name, his occupation, the word addressed to him, and his response. No attempt is made to identify him further. In fact, I'm not going to get into it because I, I wrestled with it for several weeks. It's just to, the, who is this Levi is actually a big question. We, tr- church tradition just assumes it's Matthew. Uh, and I believe that that is accurate. And I thought, and, and I started to work that in, right? Oh, I'll just do a couple paragraphs on that. And it's like, that's like three sermons all in itself. Who is this Levi of Alphaeus, the son of Alphaeus? Well, the church has always held that it's Matthew. And, and, and it's a great example, if you want to look into it, of how the church over time can seriously confuse something that isn't that complicated, right? Because how many people have more than one name in the Bible? Tons, right? So Levi is Matthew. Luke calls him Matthew. In the same exact story, the only thing that's different in Luke and Matthew is that his name is Matthew and not Levi. And so, I mean, I'm going to leave it there because, like I said, I'm not going to get into all that because we'll be here till next month. But nothing is given. I mean, Mark doesn't really care who it is. He cares very much about his occupation and his response. Who Jesus calls and the response that he gets um, from the man that he calls and everyone else around the man who he calls is really the point of the story, right? We don't know anything else about him. Mark is concerned to illustrate the radical character of Jesus' call and that it is the nature 
that it is the nature of the call rather than the name of the one called, which is of primary importance. Is he Levi or Matthew? Doesn't matter. What matters is he's a tax collector and he gets up and follows Jesus and that does not go over well with the powers to be. Now, let's talk about why. Levi's seat of customs was located at Capernaum, the first site of importance around northern, the northern end of the sea encountered by travelers from the territory of Herod Philip. Now, here's what happened. There was a giant kingdom, one kingdom, and you used to be able to walk from one end of, the, of it to the other without having to pay a tax. Well, Herod dies, and then the kingdom is split into three. And then Rome, because Rome is, is right, there, there's a reason Rome was so powerful for so long. They see an opportunity. So they break this one kingdom into three kingdoms, because now what you can do is tax everybody going from this kingdom to that kingdom. Brilliant, right? We call them states now, but whatever. So some of us can actually remember, do you guys, some of you remember when gasoline really was 25 cents a gallon, right? Yeah, amen, sister. Right? Oma tells stories all the time of what she used to be able to do with a quarter. So there are people living in this time who remember when you used to be able to walk from that town to that town and it was free. And now you got to stop and talk to this Levi guy who's going to take your money from you. And, and for that reason alone, I'm going to go on to explain now all the myriad of reasons why everybody hated Levi. <laughs> and there's a ton. One of them is the fact that we remember when we used to be able just to walk through here at no cost. Another interesting thing is that um, it, it, it is recorded in history that they would tax fish. Oh, so they would literally stand there on the shore, and when you come in with your fish, they would tax you for how many fish you have. Well, who else is following Jesus? Some old fishermen. And so imagine how they felt when the guy that used to extort them for money is now invited to sit down and eat with them, right? Have, has that ever happened? I, I, this has happened to me where I was going to Mars Hill, and there was a person there I could not believe they let in. We're going to get into that more later. But this is what they're, right? For Peter, it's like, what in the what are you, what, what? what? I wish they would have recorded his reaction because that would have been funny. Here's how the tax system worked. Rome says we need a, a certain amount of money. For, for We're going to tax all the fish this amount. We're going to tax travelers this amount. And we don't care how you get the money. Just get the money. So if you're going to charge them 70%, our takes only 30, so you can do whatever you want with the rest. So you can imagine, so, so Levi paid for this job. Who pays for a job? Well, people who want government jobs pay for jobs. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> this is why in the church in the late Middle Ages that you would pay for a living. They called it a living. Right? I, your, your dad would pay money to make you the pastor of some church you never even had to go visit in Germany. Uh, Calvin, when he was converted, was the pastor of three churches of which he had never visited. <laughs> His dad paid the money, and he got the livings from them. And, and that this is, Levi is paying because it's like a job in Congress, right? Men go into Congress poor, and they come out very rich. That's the idea behind it. Um, some people I know in college, they just they're ready. What are you going to do when you grow up? I'm going to be a congressman. Oh, do you you know do you have a lot of ideals? No, there is so much money to be had. So Levi is a Jew. And the occupying force in Israel at the time is Rome. And so Levi pays to get a job with the Roman government so that he can extort and, and cheat and rob his own people. Okay? This is like in Nazi Germany, Jews who worked for the government to help figure out who the Jews were. 
That, that's what we're dealing with here. So how would, how do, even I, whoa, he just brought the Nazis into it, and everybody's angry because we all hate Nazis. That's exactly what we're talking about. The Jews here hate the Romans like the Nazis hated Jews. History is full of ironies. Okay? And anybody who works for the Romans is an enemy of the state of Israel. And, and their law was very specific. Those men cannot act as witnesses. Those men cannot be judges. Those men are not even allowed in the synagogue. If you eat in their house, we'll kick you out of the synagogue. The, all their rabbinical teaching says this stuff. In fact, they had cases where they decided that you could break certain commandments as long as it was against tax collectors. <laughs> you could lie and cheat and steal from them as long as you could prove they were a tax collector. So Levi can't take another Jew to a Jewish court because everyone would be like, well, what's your profession? He'd be like, oh, I'm a tax collector. And they'd be like, please don't even come any closer because I want to go to synagogue on Saturday. They want nothing to do with these people. They're, what, they're the classic form of a scapegoat. Right? The problem that in Israel's mind is Rome. And the Pharisees began, they were, the Pharisees are very much like the Puritans were, where they started out and they were a great biblical group. They were like, let's go back to the Bible, let's follow God's law, let's devote ourselves to them. And, and the original Pharisees were amazing. By the time Jesus' day comes around, they're like a shell of their former selves. All of the heart is out of them, and they're just the externals. Much like in, in our history, the Puritans were great. Okay? If you want to read good theology, you want to know what good piety is, go and look at the Puritans in the first generation, mostly, the first generation. After that, they're just a parody of themselves, right? Puritanical is a word that we use pejoratively for a reason. They're usually tight-shoed, right? narrow-minded, bigoted. That's what we think when we think of Puritans. That's the later Puritans. So what we're dealing with here are the later Puritans in Jesus' day. They're not like their former self. So now, they're, right, they're all about keeping Israel clean. And so what we need to get rid of is Rome, and we need to get rid of anyone who's associated with Rome. And they thought, literally, the tax collectors were like a scapegoat. If we just got rid of them, the land would be clean and the Messiah would come. And so there was this persecution, an organized persecution of anybody who corroborated with Rome, including tax collectors. So that's who Levi is. And there's no information here. Jesus is simply walking down by the sea and sees Levi and calls him to follow him. Now, what qualifies, given everything that I've said, Levi to follow Jesus? He's, he's not of the temple. He's not of the synagogue. He's not of the traditions of the Jews. He's opposed to the traditions of the Jews. Oh, that must be why. No, that's not why either, though. <laughs> It's not that Jesus was anti-temple. He was for the temple. He was not for the Pharisees' version of it, okay? and neither does he throw it off. Remember, the leper he tells to go and obey the law of Moses because he wants to uphold the law of Moses. So what you have is a very weird group of characters here. What is going on with these characters? Why Levi? What does it all mean? Who, these Pharisees are there. Why are they there? Well, because they want to know, they've heard from the scribes that this guy, Jesus, is somebody that needs to be looked into carefully. He's teaching things he ought not teach. He's doing things he ought not do. And, <laughs> and what do they come and find him doing? Eating with a tax collector of all things. I, I believe that they would, they would be more angry and upset about this than the leper. Because the leper didn't choose to be a leper. The tax collector chose to be a tax collector. 
So Jesus is choosing to spend time with people who are, who are choosing to be wicked. Choosing to be wicked. So here Jesus is overseeing, or he's out at dinner. Now, they've gone to Levi's house because Levi is now a believer in Jesus. He's a follower of Jesus. And what, what does he do? He throws a party. He throws a dinner, a dinner party. And he invites all of his buddies over, and he invites Jesus and his followers over, and he's serving Jesus because now there's this table fellowship between the two of them. They're now sitting at the same table. Jews aren't allowed to eat with unclean Jews, so what is Jesus doing at this table with unclean people? Interesting. Interesting. Now, I want to point out something very shocking here, is that what do the Pharisees do? They see what Jesus is doing, and they don't ask Jesus about it. Just like the scribes sitting and listening to the preaching in the last sermon I preached, they're there and they're grumbling in their hearts, and Jesus reads hearts. That's how the dialogue occurs. In this case, the Pharisees don't ask Jesus directly. They ask his followers. They want to talk about the problem, not to the problem. Now, I, let, let, there's examples of this, right? Now, why are they doing that? Because they're full of pride. Now, imagine if they start asking him questions and he can answer the questions. They don't want that. They don't want that kind of challenge their authority. They would rather go after his followers, right, and get angry with them. Who is this guy? What is he doing? Why is he doing it this way? Where does he get off? They have a problem with his authority. And what they don't want is their authority challenge. They just want, they, they want to maintain that by skate, skating around the actual issue. Now, how often does that occur in homes, churches? Right? There, over the years, have you ever been at someone's house where they're talking about the elders instead of, and you know they're not talking to them? Uh, I, I had, I, this happened when I was a teacher. Kids who are talking about their parents, there's clearly a problem at home, and they're going to talk to me about it as if, right? Do you know why my dad would do that? Do you know why my dad would do this? Right? The, these Pharisees and scribes are demonstrating their problem with authority. They're talking about the problem instead of to it. Because what do men do? We abdicate, we avoid, we, we, we don't want to have a conflict directly. We just want to talk about how frustrated we are with the problem. That's abdication, that's limp-wristed, that's effeminate, that's not biblical masculinity. I'm just going to throw that out there as a side note. These guys are not upright. These guys do not have integrity. These guys have a serious problem with authority, which is why they're so dangerous, because they're in authority. Any authority who has a problem with authority is, is a serious, serious problem. And, and I've been warned by this my own kids, right? You shouldn't talk about the president that way, Dad. <laughs> right? Because what am I demonstrating? You better show me all the respect in the world, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to lambaste you know, all the authorities in my life as if they're all a bunch of morons. But you better respect me because I'm not a moron. <laughs> That's my sidebar for the day. Right? You see a lot about what these guys are like simply by this interaction. So C.S. Lewis had an essay, wrote an essay called The Inner Ring. If you haven't read it, you ought to read it. The Inner Ring. It describes our common desire to be accepted within the inner ring of whatever group matters at the time to us. To feel excluded, to feel out of it is miserable. We all want to be on the inner ring of something, right? This is why little kids make clubs. 
I'm fascinated by my, my kids making a club amongst themselves. It's like you're already the Klosses. How much more exclusive do you need to be? <laughs> right? And, and sometimes, unfortunately, the, the answer is boys and girls. And then you're like, okay, well, uh, there's only one of the girl, and so let's think about this. Right? Why, do you, right? Why do we, as little kids, just do this? Why do we want clubs? What's the adult version of that? Now, everyone inherently wants to be on the inside, not the outside. And, and C.S. Lewis goes so far, I mean, he, this is central to his way of thinking. This is what motivates a lot of people, a lot of people. Being on the inside. Think how often at work you've, you've made sure not to say the wrong thing and say the right thing, even though you don't really believe the right thing, simply because you don't want to be an outsider. Right? I, I, I remember sitting there in the lunchroom because I worked in a courthouse with 18 women. I was the only male. And somebody says something about patriarchy. And then there it is. Am I going to say something? Am I going to get into that? Or am I going to stay on the inside? Right? And what do we do? We check down every time, almost every time, and stay inside. And that is what I'm talking about. Now, all kinds of things can become inner rings. Generally, inner rings are based around things that are good, Right? But, but whenever you can say, I'm on the exclusive inside of this where I know something or I can do something and, and the rest of everybody else doesn't do it, that's when you're creating an inner ring. Now, have you ever heard somebody who's really into home birth talk about like everybody else who's not into home birth doesn't really love their kids? <laughs> right? This is... Or, or organic food has made like an entire industry out of this, right? We don't use pesticides on our vegetables, which they can't really prove or disprove generally at QSC, but, they, but they, you call it organic and you're on the inside of the health club now. They've monetized it. Fantasy football is this way. Economics is this way. I, I was at a conference and all these guys, these, I was at a reconstructionist conference, which is a long explanation anyway, but these are guys who really don't like the government, who really like the law of God. Amen. But they kept saying this phrase, fiat currency. And I was, I had no, I was like, what? They all use it, but they don't want to explain it, but they talk this way. And I'm like, I feel like I'm on the outside of this here. And so what I, what I do is I don't, right, I'm like the Pharisees, I'm too proud, so I Google it. Fiat currency. And then I used fiat currency. <laughs> right? Because that's exactly what we do. We do not want to be the person everyone is like, wow, that guy looks weird, sounds weird, acts weird. He's out on the outside. Now, what is more exclusive than the temple of, of Israel? Right? If you're on the inside of that, you're on the inside, right? Because that's where God lives. That's where God lives. And, and so do you think the Pharisees or modern Christians would possibly make an inner ring out of that? It's like the most exclusive club you can get into because you're chosen. <laughs> and then once you're chosen, you get inside. How easily do we make all the distinctives of it, right? Distinctives of ourselves as if we just had those qualities and, and, and attributes in ourselves. See, the Pharisees at this point have forgotten a number of things. One of them are the promises that God made to Abraham and, the, and other believers about the plan that he had for the whole world. Because he wasn't just creating a ghetto or an inner circle or this elite club. He, he, he started with a particular family. He was gracious enough to choose them, to work through them, to bless everyone. 
The Pharisees in Jesus' day have clearly forgotten that portion of the Old Testament. Genesis 12, 2 through 3. God says, and I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 1 Kings chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 41, it says this, Solomon says this about the the creation of the temple. This is his prayer. This is what he's saying when they set up the temple. Think about this compared to what the Pharisees are like. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. It goes on in this way. The temple wasn't just for Israel. It was the place that the nations were supposed to be attracted to. How do I get in there? How do I get in there? I'm here now. I'm on the outside. Clearly, I can't go inside. How do I get inside? Well, the law actually in the Old Testament had a pathway to citizenship in a sense. If you wait enough generations, you get the foreign blood out of you, you could actually get into the temple. So does does it seem like the Pharisees have a plan like this? Oh, the Romans are here now. Let's try to convert some of them to Judaism. No. They're like, well, where's the Messiah who's going to murder all these guys and get them out of here? They have come a long way. They have come a long way. Forget all of that stuff, right? That's not it. No, this is it here from Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, which is it, God? Do you want the nations to come in, or do you want us to stay away from them? Well, wisdom dictates how you put these two verses together. Right? How do you stay clean from the ways of the wicked and yet attract them into the temple and make them part of the family of God? Right? That, that require, that's, ooh, that's dicey. The Pharisees have forgotten all of, they're just about the separation part. Why? Well, because they want to have an inner ring. They want to have an inner ring. Now, one last thing I want to explain here before we get to the preaching portion of today's sermon is that they are confounded by the fact that Jesus is eating with this dirty, disgusting, filthy, horrible tax collector. And, and their writing, tax collectors were listed with, the, with lists of sinners, including murderers, adulterers, fornicators, liars, right? It's like the worst kind of person is what a tax collector is. So what is Jesus doing eating with them? Well, as was read for us today, Leviticus 3, what, what is that? What is the sacrificial system? That was a lot of instructions, wasn't it? Take this animal and cut it up this way and separate this part, burn that part and don't. But ultimately, what is all of that about? In the end, what is it about? Leviticus 3.11, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. See, when God appeared to Israel, it was a smoke, right? A pillar of smoke by day, a pillar of fire by night. What happens to things when you burn them? They turn into smoke. So the pillar of smoke absorbs the smoke of the sacrifice into himself. He eats it, which is what you do with food. 
you put it in your mouth, you chew it up, and it becomes part of you. This is what, it's table fellowship. They're not just randomly burning an animal. God's eating it, right? You're supposed to reserve some of it. Well, let's back up for a second. You take the animal and you put your hands on it and you say the sins you've committed. It becomes you, right? Here's the lamb, Michael, taking it over to the priests. They slit its throat, cut it up into a bunch of pieces, barbecue it. God eats some of it, I eat some of it, and the priests eat some of it. So the sacrificial system is about what? A meal with God. A meal with God. The Pharisees have no clue what it's about. Because here is Jesus eating with sinners. Now, how can he do that? Well, he must forgive their sins. Okay, so in in the sacrificial system, you had to come and lay your sins on the lamb, and it had to be burned, and then you draw near to God. What happened to all that? Where did all of that go? The sacrificial system was about God eating with sinners that he forgave, demonstrated through this entire process. But the Pharisee is is sitting there, and what he thinks it is, is a key code into the inner sanctum. right? If I just punch this series of numbers on this door, it'll unlock, and I'll get to go into the inner ring. The inner ring. But that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. Hosea 6.6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Psalm 51.16-17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. If you have a broken and contrite heart, you come to the table of the Lord. He would prefer you to do it in a particular way because there's a lesson to be learned from all of that. But you can still draw, I think you're drawing near to him because you have the externals, but your heart is far from him. You don't actually have to repent to do all that chopping up and do all that fancy stuff in your fancy clothes and burn it in a fancy way. That whole sacrificial system, it's there in the Pharisees and they think they're still eating at God's table. But God has nothing to do with that table. God is far from that table. God couldn't be further from that table. In Ezekiel, it says (laughs) that he got up and left the temple. He's not sitting at that table anymore. They're burning sacrifices to nobody. He has nothing to do with that. Now, right now, Christ has come because he's, he's creating a new Israel around a new table with a new sacrifice. And at the heart of it is still what was supposed to be at the heart of it all along, which is, I am confessing my sins because I am a sinner and you're forgiving me because you are a gracious and loving God. A gracious and loving God. Isaiah 1, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 1 for a moment, verse 12 through 20. This is what it says. This is what God says of Israel and Second Temple Judaism. When you come to appear before me who has required of you this trampling of my courts, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Solemn assembly, he can't endure it. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing it. Now, now, this is the Puritan party. This is the Pharisee party. What happened to these verses? Where is their understanding of this? 
They have forgotten who they, what's happened to them, and they've lost their way. So imagine in our day for a moment. We hear that Jesus has come back. <laughs> Sweet. Let's go find him. Where would he be? Well, he would be at the National Big Tent Conference, wouldn't he? The one with all the big preachers and bloggers. That's where he'd be, right? Clearly, he's headlining. But no, we wouldn't find him there, would we? Okay. Well, maybe he's down at, this, at one of the seminaries. So we go down to Westminster, we go down to Reform, we go down to Dallas, thinking maybe he's at a faculty meeting. <laughs> nope. No faculty meeting. Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. It's November. I understand. I, I, this is where I went wrong. He must be down at the conservative think tank on family values and Jeffersonian democracy strategizing the midterms, right? Because that's what he cares about. But he's not there either. Exacerbated, you find out finally that he's at a dinner. Like, a dinner? Eating? He's eating right now? You're like, okay, so you go down there and you're like, well, whose house is this? Well, it's a judge from the Ninth Circuit Court. <laughs> Stunned, you go in there. Now you're starting to feel a little uncertain about what's going on. And lo and behold, there he sits between the ex-disgraced youth pastor and your car mechanic who's a Roman Catholic. And you're like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now you're nervous. But you don't want to say anything to him, right? Because he clearly seems like an idiot. So you ask one of the guys sitting there, hey, um, isn't that lady a porn star? The guy says, how do you know she's a porn star? <laughs> awkward, super awkward, we're going to move on. <laughs> isn't that the head of the news department for CNN? Isn't that guy an accountant for Planned Parenthood? What is he doing here amongst all these unclean people, right? Doesn't he get it? There's a culture war. They're kneeling during the national anthem. They're letting men use the women's restroom, right? They're putting, God forbid, chemicals on tomatoes to harvest them, right? The food is unclean. This world is unclean. What is he doing here eating and drinking with sinners, It, how quickly we take the table that he's given us and make it our own little inner circle. How quickly. We hold that bread, we hold the wine, and we think, yes, yes, I am magnificent. I am righteous. I am good. And you are because you were a filthy, disgusting outcast that he brought into his house and sat at his table. The people of God never understand who he's fighting and how he's fighting it. We, we just don't get it. Because, because we think very quickly, we've, it's all figured out now. I don't need to wrestle with the truth. I don't need to repent too much of too much because, you know, I'm, right? I'm pretty good. I stay at home. I don't drive too fast. I pay my bills. I gotta, I, I'm good. We don't think too hard about these things or repent too hard of these things. In our lives that are making us unclean because we think it's all figured out already. The, the thing, though, is where is Jesus in this story? Who is he with? 
around his table who was sitting there. Sinners. Sinners are sitting there. People who are going out and actually committing actual sins. It's not an illusion. It's not a past tense. He's there with people who know that they need a physician. The Pharisees are on the outside saying, I, I, I don't know what is going on here, but I don't want any part of it, right? We've got real serious issues to deal with. And Jesus is going around with compassion and with meals and with words of kindness and words of instruction, and he's separating the clean from the unclean. And he's taking all the unclean, and he's making them clean. And he doesn't want any part with anybody who's clean all by themselves, He doesn't invite these guys to the table. He says something that purposely angers them and sends them away. Think about that for a moment. Think about that. Oh, oh, you guys are here. Okay, good, good. Now we can add a little, you know, theological hubris to this whole thing here now, right? Now the carnival can really get started because the guys who have memorized the Old Testament, well, some of the Old Testament are here, and they're going to really solidify the team. No, he, he, see, he sees them there in their anger and their envy and their self-righteousness and their desire for a scapegoat. And he sees them and he says something to them that actually drives them away. Because unless they hear it and are heartbroken and they feel a burning in their bosom and they get on their knees and say, yes, I am sick, he says the hard thing because what he wants is not a hard heart but a soft heart. You say the hard thing to the hard heart and the soft thing to the soft heart. And that's what Jesus always does. It's what he always does. And if, and if you're leading your home differently, if the church is being led differently, there's a real serious problem. A real serious problem. Where are you sitting? Right? Where are you, what does he call you to every week? Picketing? Street evangelism? He calls you to come and sit at his table around these elements because he's made you clean. Because this is how he's transforming the world. This is how he's transforming the world. One person at a time, one church at a time, one community at a time, one nation at a time, one generation at a time. He's right on schedule. His plan hasn't changed. And you are on the inside of that. And, and how quickly you want to make that an inner circle, I've got it all figured out, I'm really where it's at, it is so fast that, again, right, we'll barely make it out of the parking lot and we'll be back thinking about this as an inner circle. He's here amongst the unclean to make you clean. Now, you went out this week and you got unclean, didn't you? Right? Was, was there a sign on the door today that said closed? <laughs> was there tape across that said, okay, well, you guys have really done it this time. I want no part of you. Now, is he saying something hard to you at this moment? And it's like, whoa, oof. That's hard. That, hard things for hard hearts, soft things for soft hearts. He's very gracious, very compassionate very understanding, and he's here because he's eat, he wants to eat and have a meal, a fellowship meal with you. I was just talking to someone recently about this. The thing about the going from the Old Testament to the New Testament is, is God, in his infinite wisdom, has made things a lot easier and a lot more difficult at the same time. 
We do not, this morning, have to go through 19 or 20 steps of slaughtering some poor goat, right, because we looked at something or said something we didn't do. He's taken away all that difficulty. And he says, that this is, this is now how easy it is. You sit there, you hear the word of God, confess your sin, repent. He restores you, and then we have a meal. Look at how easy it's become. And yet, why is it so hard? Right? In one way, it's a lot easier. In another way, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder. Here, the table of the Lord is. Now, what does that say? What does it say about you? Right? If you're eating here, is it because you needed a doctor? You know at one point you did. Do you still need a doctor? Because he's here to heal you. He's here to clean you. He's here to make you whole and new, just like he did to the demoniac and Peter's mom and the leper and the, and the paralytic and to Levi. This is what he does. He makes people whole. He takes away what separates them from others. He takes away what makes them unclean. And he makes them his children, sits them down at his table, table and feeds them. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. This is not an inner circle this is not about scapegoats. It's not about getting the commies out of the land. It's not about, you know, drain the swamp. It's about your heart. There is an inv- There are invaders in, in, in Israel at this time. They think it's Rome and the, and the scribes, or the scribes think it's Rome and the tax collectors. But who is the actual invaders? There is a cancer, and it needs to be removed. And who is the surgeon? Now, if you deny, right, what happens to a cancer patient who acts like they don't have cancer? What happens when the cancer patient gets the chemo in time and the surgery in time? They live. They're healed. There is a cancer, and it's, it's not scapegoats out there. It's here, in our midst, in our own hearts. That's what's wrong with the world. The heart of the matter is the heart, your heart. And he's here again to clean it again, to welcome you to the table again. And amen. Father, I thank you so much for your word. The double-edged sword, Father, that cuts deep, separates bone and sinew. But we know that the hand of the sword is gentle, that the hand of the sword is loving. The hand of the scalpel is seeking to save, seeking to heal, seeking to make whole. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for not giving up on us, but yet again calling us to your table and drawing near to us. We pray, Lord God, that we would have faith in your Son, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation, that you would indeed not give up on us, but, Father, continue to pursue us in this loving way. We feel your nearness. We feel your love. And we pray, Lord God, that it would not just shape this morning, but that it would shape every day of our week. And amen.